Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along, the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and Season 2 revolves around the Fallout role-playing game. If, by chance, you're still needing to pick up your copy of the rules, either stop by your local game or bookshop, or, if those aren't options, check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net. All right, we've got a ton of stuff to get into this week on The Build, but we really do need to take a minute for me to address something that's come up over the past couple of weeks, and it goes back to comments I've made over the course of this season about the number of acts and how long the adventure would run. I know I said numerous times over the course of this season that we'd be going at least three acts, and I had hinted that we might go longer than that. However, I haven't announced the end of Act 2 and the beginning of Act 3, and that's got some folks wondering how much longer this campaign is going to go. So, let's take a moment to cover this question as best as I can at this moment. Today's show is the first in what we're going to designate as Act 3. I think we're making enough of a major plot shift at this point that it's appropriate. I keep talking about how what we're doing now has changed the story for the rest of the campaign, so making this a new act is definitely apropos. Insofar as how many acts are left, look, I know I said we'd go as long as we needed to, and while that still is the plan, I think Act 3 will probably be the last one. I mean, we're about 45 build episodes into the season, which for me works out to at least 45 sessions, though you may have more or less depending. And I don't know about you or your group, but I know my group as well as myself personally. Yeah, we have the attention span of a bunch of hamsters. So another act's worth of sessions is probably about as much as we've got left. Now, all of that being said, I, I still don't know exactly how many more episodes we've got in the season. I know that even with the big reveal we've just had over the past couple of weeks, we've got a lot of story left to tell. So we're just going to see where things go and we're going to ride the wave. It might be three months. It might be six months. It might be longer. I'm not going to put a timeline on things here, nor will I do so moving forward until I'm positive about when things are going to happen. So I realized that much like a good politician, I was specifically vague again, but I think that's going to answer the question. That means we've got a lot of stuff to cover, and that also means I need to shut my pie hole and get to the recap from last week. We started last week with the group continuing their conversation with Mackenzie Cook at her hidey hole, during which she laid out multiple things, including acknowledging that she's been the one sending letters to the group, which she's been doing in order to provide them with help without being obvious about it. She explained to them in detail the issues that have caused the split within the Brotherhood of Steel itself. During that info dump, she got into her own power armor and she and the group headed for Alton. The group got a full rundown on the history of the split and the reasons why. Cook also explained why she's been appearing as a member of the Missouri State Patrol and why she chose to come to St. Louis. By the time she was done, the group had arrived in Alton, where they met Cook's group of Brotherhood of Steel members, and it was discussed that this group would be taking on the other group in an attempt to prevent them from taking over the city. The group's role in all of this would be to track down Jessica Denman, determine what her role in all of this is, and prevent that from happening. 
We also put in a scenario for characters who found themselves captured by Garson Tactical during the previous week's combats, and it involved Cook and or the rest of the PCs rescuing him. That's the recap, and while we do need to get to building, I realized when I was editing last week's episode that I've got a few things I need to clear up from last week's build before we move on. First, I realized when listening back to the Mackenzie Cook info dump that she made it sound like she knew Paladin Zane pretty well from having served on the Pugnus, but their original interaction in the campaign made it sound like Zane knew of Cook only from reports and reputation. So which one is accurate? I think I can weasel my way out of this with a single change. They didn't know each other personally and never directly interacted. What Cook knows of Zane comes from Brotherhood members she'd gotten somewhat close to during her time on the Pugnus, and she believes what they told her. Zane would have heard a lot about Cook, and since she didn't know her personally, she'd have heard a lot from Elder Cannon and those in his inner circle, and it would make sense that the positive things Cannon had to say about Cook would have made her jealous as all get out. Second, and I cannot believe I let this slide when I wrote the episode, it occurred to me when I was listening back to Cook's info dump, she basically admitted to having gotten close to the group to, in a manner of speaking, use them to help deal with Jessica Denman. Now, I'm pretty sure my group's not going to be happy about things when they figure that out, so we need to work this out while it's still fresh. And if you haven't gotten to it yet, we'll have a solution for you if you need to use it. So let's look at it like this. Cook can justify what she did by noting that she didn't ask them to do anything that they weren't already doing. She'll note that every target she gave them information on, short the Granite City job, were people they were already looking into for one reason or another. Her attempts to get friendly with them were genuine, as she not only wanted to become an ally of theirs for potential future missions, such as what they're getting ready to do, but also because it was obvious that regardless of why they were doing the things they were doing, the things that they were doing were good for the people one way or the other. Those are the kinds of people she prefers to associate with, so while she can understand why the group might be angry with her, her intentions were actually sincere. For the most part. Last, I realize I mentioned that any Brotherhood of Steel member who got promoted by Elder Sandvar would get a suit of Brotherhood of Steel power armor, but I never actually said what that was. Well, let's remedy that. In the rules, knights don't have power armor. That's actually saved for paladins. That being said, we're about to drop everyone into a combat-heavy series of scenarios, so we're going to put our knights into power armor. The notes for the Paladin state, they get a full suit of T-60 armor, but they don't give the letter classification. We will say for our purposes that Paladins get T-60F, which is the highest classification. That means we could give the Knights any classification below that, and we're going to go with T-60D, since it's the first classification that gives both physical and energy protection on the chest piece. The stats are on page 142, so work that up for your group as need be. Also, if this means the group has more suits of power armor than they have group members, they can store a suit safely on the Pacificus once it gets launched. Okay, so that's everything I noticed that I'd missed, and as I check your emails and DMs over the next couple of days, I'll take notes of the things you point out, and I'll follow up on it next week. Oh, and we haven't leveled up in a bit, so let's take a moment and do that now. Done? All right, let's build new. We'll pick up with the group all together at the Brotherhood's base just across the river from Alton. 
Elder Sandvar had indicated to the group that their missions will be more directed at figuring out what Jessica Denman is up to and stopping it. And while she did say that's because the group knows the area better than her and her team, she's not just going to send them out blindly to start turning over rocks. She does have a piece of intelligence to give them. She reports that one of the last things Knight Collins sent to her before she stopped sending messages and was presumed lost was the name of someone she'd gotten word that Zane and her crew were looking for. Now, insofar as Collins knew, Zane hadn't found this person yet and was beginning to coordinate with Denman and her security forces to try to find them. The individual's name is Constance Yates, and while Zanvar has no idea what Zane would want with her, the fact that Zane does want her is enough to have the group check it out. Her last known location, per Collins' report, was among the destruction of the old St. Louis University. The group should remember that location, since they've been there previously. In fact, when Zanvar gives the description of Yates, the group will faintly remember seeing someone that fits that description during their meeting when they were there several weeks earlier. And yeah, this campaign's only been going on for about a month or two, so even something that took place at the very beginning would be several weeks ago. I know. Zanvar will insist that the group be properly rested, healed, and equipped before letting them leave, though letting them leave is a bit stronger of a phrase. Obviously, they can leave whenever they want. Zanvar is just very much a mothering type of person, and she wants to make sure they're as good as they can get before they walk out the door. Okay? All right. I, I had to get that in quick. <laughs> just trust me. She provides them with a radio to use to communicate with the Pacificus, since the airship will be getting airborne shortly after they leave. If the group has a Mr. Handy or Mr. Gutsy, she will instead have one of the tech folks provide the coded frequencies to the robot, as well as offer to install a longer range transmitter so that they can communicate without the need to have a radio. For the record, that second option is most likely going to be the one my group uses. So once the group's healed, rested, and supplied, it's time to get back to what they do best. We laid out how long it took to get from Cook's hideout to Alton last week, so we'll go with that same time to get from Alton to St. Louis University. And as the group makes their way to the south, they see the giant airship of Cannon's Brotherhood of Steel group settling over the downtown area. They can make out the dots of vertebrates detaching from it, and they can imagine what the first targets are going to be. Now, they don't get too far to the south before they hear the engines of Sandvar's airship crank up, and within a half hour, it's up and running, headed towards its meeting with its opposition. With the group having a specific mission, we're going to set the Brotherhood of Steel to the side for a bit. And while we can toss encounters in here right now, I'm not going to do that. I think we need to get the group into the actual scenario for the week. But if you feel like tossing some encounters in, as always, feel free to do it. As the group gets close to the rubble of St. Louis University, they pick up the smell of gunpowder and death. And as they start to pick their way through it, they find the sources. Bodies are spread out throughout the rubble, and most have either been shot in the head or have enough shots to the torso that it's obvious it was overkill. The area also looks like it's been tossed for anything of value. Cots and mattresses have been tossed and or cut open. Footlockers have been tossed. You get the picture. There is stuff literally all over the place. Picking through all that debris, the group doesn't find anything they'd consider valuable. Any weapons or armor that might have been here have obviously been taken, and the clothing and other items that are left would only be of value to someone who didn't have anything. 
So that leaves the group checking through the bodies to see if they can find anyone matching the description they got for Yates. Pausing here for just a moment, I intentionally didn't give a description for Yates because I want you to put one in of your own, especially if you got into descriptions of people when the group was here the last time. Use one of those since it would match up with what we said about the group being faintly familiar with her. Getting back to it, the group has to do some serious searching to find Yates. Some of these bodies are very hard to identify, so they'll need to make a perception plus luck check difficulty four to find what they're looking for. The body that matches the description looks like she was buried in rubble during some sort of an explosion. We're not going to write up the description here. You go with whatever works for your style. However, when they check the body, they do find a holotape. Okay, quick pause here again. I know I've got a thing for holotapes, but I found them to be a good way to pass on information without having someone around for the group to ask a lot of questions that I don't necessarily want to give the answers for. Don't know what I'm going to do next season when I'm playing a different game and I don't have holotapes, but we'll figure that out then. All right, so the group probably has a Pip-Boy by now, which means they can play the tape while they're still on site. Now, I know what you're saying. If there's been some sort of slaughter here, why would they stick around to play the tape? It's a good point, but it's pretty obvious that nobody's around right now, so they should be good. If they want to go somewhere, they're really just about a dozen blocks or so away from the symphony hall, so they could head there to find a quiet spot to check out the tape. When they do, the voice coming from the tape is very familiar. It's Victor's. Now, I'm not going to do the voice, but this is what they hear. Constance, there are forces out there that mean to do you harm. The information you gave me proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jessica Denman intends to join forces with the Brotherhood of Steel to take over the city. If that happens, I will be one of the first on their list. I strongly suggest you head for the safe house in St. Charles and lay low until I can get my people to you. Do not try to be a hero. You did your job and you did it quite well. What we now know will help me direct my team in the direction to head this off before it gets any worse. Please, for me, get to the safe house. And the message ends. Now, the group probably got very interested, or really mad, either one is possible, when Victor mentioned the information. Was it what he told them about Mackenzie Cook, or was it something more? Without a doubt, the group is going to want to see Victor about this. And if they're already in the symphony hall, they can head right into the medical suite to see him. If not, they can make their way down to it without a combat to see him. They will see the usual super mutants on the door, and they're armored heavily and keeping their miniguns close in hand. They give the group the nod when they get close, and since the group knows where they're headed and have the approval of Mr. Lee to come and go, they can get to the medical suite without anyone stopping them. And Victor looks a lot better than he did the last time they saw him. He's sitting up in the bed since it's been elevated to allow him to do so. His color seems to have come back, and while he's still got a number of tubes coming out of him, he's definitely taken a turn for the better. His eyes brighten when he sees the group, though the looks on their faces probably turns him serious pretty quickly. We both know that Candace Yates and the info she found are coming up, so I'm just going to lay it out. When it concerns Yates... She was an old friend of mine. She had been one of my best sources for information for a very long time. She had the ability to get into just about anywhere and get information from them. I will admit to having cared a lot about her, but there was never anything romantic about it. That is why I wanted her to get to the safe house. If she was there, nobody could get to her, and I would have been able to send you there to watch over her. Talking about the information, 
Shortly after Paladin Zane and her cohorts arrived, I asked Constance to dig up anything she could about them and why they were here. I believed their story about as far as I could throw them, although I could not tell you that. And before you ask why, I could not tell you because my hope was that you would be able to get close to them and figure out why they were here. And yes, one could say I used you on that one, but I believe I have more than earned your trust, and I need you to trust that this was not only for your benefit, but also the benefit of all. Now, he'll need to pause, mostly because he needs a drink, and he's upset that it's purified water instead of vodka, but he'll deal with it. Constance was able to determine that Paladin Zane and Jessica Denman had been communicating with each other for several months before their arrival. Why they were speaking is still unknown, but one can speculate that they were planning to work together to eliminate myself, Mr. Lee, Melanie Zombrowski, and others that do what we do. The arrival of that airship is all the proof you need. He then gets very serious. Constance believed that the kidnapping of Zane and her team was a front to draw you out. That they managed to bring Miss Cook out as well as something they saw as a bonus. The best we can surmise is that they find you to be enough of a threat that they wanted to eliminate you as quickly as possible. And then he smiles. Because as we know, you have a habit of taking the plans of others and completely messing them up. Now he has one more piece of information to share. There is a rumor that Jessica Denman has set up her base of operations inside of Forest Park. The best that we have been able to surmise is that she is using the reputation of the park as an extra security measure. Again, I cannot definitively confirm it, but between Constance and other sources of both mine and Mr. Lee's, it certainly seems to be a strong possibility. If the group asks about the safe house, he will say, there is not an actual above ground building. Those who can have access to it are given a transmitter. Once they get across the river, the transmitter activates beacons that will help them triangulate and find the safe house. If the group asks for one, he'll give them one. If they have a Mr. Handy or a Mr. Gutsy, he'll instead give them the transmitter code. At that point, the medical droid will request that they give Victor time to rest and he will shoo them out of the medical suite. So, we now know that at some point the group's going to have to go into Forest Park. However, there is a possibility that the group might decide to head to the safe house, so I wanted to build it out just in case. It also gives you a place to drop some goodies for your group, if you so choose. I doubt my group will do this, but since I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that they won't, we need to build it. It's about an eight-hour walk from the Symphony Hall to the city of St. Charles, and I do want a couple of encounters along the way. Four separate encounters spaced out between shortly after they head out until about a half an hour outside of St. Charles. These are all Garson tactical personnel, and we're still using the Brotherhood of Steel night stats. Those are on page 383. We'll go with two more than the total number of group members, since it's not intended to be a whole lot more than a bit of a challenge and something to drain a few resources. Now, for those who are unaware, in order to get from western St. Louis County to St. Charles, you have to cross the Missouri River. There are two points at which you can do this, but we're going with only one bridge still standing, and it's the one for the old Interstate 70. Much like the McKinley Bridge across the Mississippi they crossed when they went to Granite City several episodes back, this one has a ton of holes in it. However, they can safely cross it, though it will take a bit more time than they'd anticipated. And if it's dark, they will really have to move carefully so that they don't fall through any holes. 
As soon as they clear the bridge, either the transmitter they're holding starts to buzz, or the robot that has the transmitter codes will start receiving information. The signal they get from the beacons leads them a bit further to the west before directing them slightly north. In our time, that location is a Bass Pro Shop, and it's a very large building. In the Fallout world, it's a mound of earth with grass growing on it that's left over from the construction of Interstate 70. The signal's at its strongest when they're about midway up and across the mound, and when they reach the exact middle, two solid metal doors pop up on their hinges, one to the left and one to the right. They give the group access to a stairwell. When all of the group members are on the stairs and clear, the doors will close and they hear a metal latch clang into place. And as they make their way down the stairs, lights turn on in the stairwell. Now, at the bottom of the stairs, there's another metal door, though this one has a computer-run lock. Getting in is a nothing check. The computer just asks for identification, and whichever group member types their name in is given access. That door will unlock, and they can open it. Now, this safe house is nice. There are several very nice couches in the sitting room they enter into. As they make their way through, there's a kitchen with a sink that has clean running water. There's also a bathroom with a clean toilet, a sink, and a shower. All are clean and all have clean running water. In the rear of the shelter is a bedroom with four single beds in it. They're clean and the beds are made with clean linens. And hanging on the wall across from a couple of the beds are a couple of laser rifles and enough cells to power them for a fairly significant siege. So, unless you put something here, this is basically a waste of the group's time, but since we mentioned it, I figured we probably ought to write it up. It's going to take the group about six hours to get from St. Charles to Forest Park, and we'll put two more encounters in here, same as the last batch, so refer back to those notes. And as they approach the park from the Washington University side, we're going to wrap the build for this week. And while I know we're stopping a little bit short, it's because the park is going to take a lot of time and I'd rather have a full show to do as much as possible rather than cut it off and pick it up later after we just started and done a little bit. So we're going to pick up right here next week and we'll figure out where this base is and what is in the park waiting for our group. In the meantime, check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, I'm breaking down a Goodman Games printing of a classic D&D adventure and they've updated it for 5th edition. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out all the fine products produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We are all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net, to see where you can follow us. Next week, we check out the mystery that is Forest Park. But that is next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.